Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Poplar Propcast. This week, we're very lucky to be joined by Pamela Yungi of the Yungi Group. They are a realtor group here in Las Vegas that specializes in residential buying and selling, as well as commercial buying and selling. Uh, if you want to reach out to them for Las Vegas Realtor Services, you can reach them at 702-812-6339 or at theyungegroup.com. I'm going to spell that for you. It's T-H-E-J-U-N-G-E-G-R-O-U-P.com, theyungegroup.com. And if you do need property management services, you can find that from us at poplar.home slash pod. Enjoy this week's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Poplar Propcast. I'm Justin Libernet, and with us today, our guest is Pamela Jungge. Jungge, which way do you say it? You know, it could absolutely be both. Um, if you are German, you're going to pronounce it Junga. Junga. Well, I'm, Good German. I'm German, but I'm not that German, so I guess I have to pronounce it the lazy American way. Um, so the, the American way is Jungi. That's That's most commonly known. Jungi. Okay. So you're, you're a real estate professional. You've been in real estate for quite some time. You're, um, I'm a licensed salesperson. Licensed salesperson. Okay, perfect. So what we're going to be talking about today for our guests is kind of um, how her career has progressed inside of the Las Vegas market, what she's seen inside of the Las Vegas market in the time she's been here. And then we're going to kind of expand that into a larger conversation about the current shape of the Las Vegas market, because there's a lot of questions about the economic pressures that are coming to bear on housing across the country. And with how reactive Las Vegas is, it's kind of a canary in the coal mine for the swings in the industry. So with that said, Pam, if you'd go ahead and give us kind of a a run into how you got your start in real estate, like what spawned that beginning of becoming who you are as a real estate professional? Absolutely. It was actually completely 100% by accident. So um, I graduated high school when I was 17 years old from Clark High School. I think there were five high schools in Las Vegas at the time. So if you look at it, fast forward today, there's probably 50 high schools in town. So small little rodeo town when I graduated in 1987. I was 17 years old and college just wasn't a thing for my family. So mom got me a job as a receptionist at a title company. And I fell in love with the industry. So, Interesting. Uh, yeah, it was fun to actually learn the industry of real estate backwards, right? Starting yeah. mechanics of ownership and how property transfers and Yeah, so let's 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 talk about something you mentioned that I think is interesting. So you said there were five high schools at that point? Correct. And now we've got the Clark County School District is the second or third largest school district in the nation. It's it's behind New York and I think LA. And then Clark County is the third largest. And that's because we just have one giant school district that serves all of Las Vegas. One giant Um, school district. I don't know if that's a good thing or if that can be broken down into more manageable parts and pieces. But yeah, you're correct. Yeah, it's it's a complicated beast. And I know it comes up all the time for which way to go with schooling. Um, It's part of the origin of why we have legalized gambling here is one of the big things that they got push through is they go, Hey, we're going to use the money from the casinos to pay for schools. But you know, that's kind of drifted away. We don't quite use it all in that way. It still provides some of the money for schools, but that also provides a large portion of our budget for just everything is gambling revenue, which really influences how the state's politics work. Um, I just think that's an interesting kind of um, market indicator in Vegas, just to talk about how weird we are as a place. Um, So with that, I'll turn it back to you to talk through transitioning from title to your next steps. 
yeah, it was, it was fun. So I did that for a year and I was just so entranced with the business and the industry. I learned really fast and you got to imagine this is back in the day where we were actually typing contracts on a typewriter, right? So it depended yeah. on, you know, whether it was an FHA contract or a conventional contract or a VA or an AITD, because those were very popular back in the day, which was an all-inclusive trustee. Um, because when I got into the industry, interest rates were 12 and 14%, which is something that's unheard of today, right? Like people don't like yeah. to think about that. But, so there was some creative financing back then. So it depended on what type of contract you were doing as to what form we used on a typewriter. And I got really good at it. And um, a, a gentleman who owned a hard money lending company was watching me. So when I was about 18 years old, he walked in one day and he said, hey, why don't you come work for me? I'll give you a buck more an hour. So that meant I went from $4 an hour to $5 an hour. I was 20% raise. Yeah. 20%. Listen, that meant a big, that meant, a, that meant I could buy groceries that week, right? Yeah. So I gave my two-week notice, packed my desk, and I went to work for a hard money lender, which was probably the best education I could have ever had. So for seven years, I was managing investor funds. And what we were doing was we were lending to builders in town. So if you flew over Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. So this is like the late 80s, early 90s now. So if Yeah, there's a lot Vegas, of building. Yeah. And if you flew over Vegas in the late 80s, you just saw massive amounts of land, empty land everywhere, right? And that's when builders were actually starting to develop um, communities, like subdivisions as we know them today. So we were dealing with like Stan Park Construction, Champion Homes, uh, Jimmy Rhodes with Rhodes Development. And uh, Kaufman and Broad, because at the it, back in the day it was actually Kaufman and Broad. Today we know it as KB. Yep. And so they would come to us. They'd buy a piece of land. They would come to us. We would give them some money to make improvements and in infrastructure. Then they would do that. We'd give them some more money to go vertical. And we did this all with private investor funds. So for about seven years, we, I got to actually like dig in the trenches and help develop Las Vegas and watch it grow. It's pretty cool. And for the for the timing for me when I think through it, so I'm living in the second house that I bought in Vegas. The first one I was living in was in the Spring Valley neighborhood. And the Spring Valley neighborhood was built like right at the end of the 70s. And then the one I'm in now was built right in the middle of the 80s. And there's a, there's a stark difference between the two. Um, and it's also interesting to look at how the neighborhoods are assembled and how there's different attention paid to what's around the properties. Well, right? so- Spring Valley has a lot of stuff that's supported by the city. And then the neighborhood I'm in now has more stuff that's supported by HOA and then some city stuff like a nearby park, but nothing in the residential space. You're in a more rural neighborhood, right? Yeah. 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 It, and talk about that. It was super interesting because I grew up in Spring Valley um, right off of Tropicana. So there was mm -hmm. a great divide, right? Because there were um, the haves and the have-nots, depending on which side of Tropicana you lived on. On the ridge side of Tropicana is Spanish Trails. Yeah. So a big master plan golf community. Yeah, it's huge. It's one of those golf course communities, yeah. Yeah, I, I, there's a sheik that lives in there, very prestigious, right? On the other side of Tropicana is Spring Valley. These were bread and butter homes for mom and pop, raising a family, very affordable. So, you know, there was a, a big divide right there. And if you don't mind me asking, whereabouts were you in there? Because that's my first place was on uh, Lake Place, just off the loop. So that Lake Place is kind of even closer to the lakes, right? 
No, it's, so it's right by where uh, Spring Valley South and Rainbow Cross. It's mm-hmm. like the second left in there right before Peaceway. Okay. So, yeah, I, so just due north of Tropicana Rainbow. Yeah. I was more like in the Laurel Wood, like by mm. Decker Elementary. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and these homes were, you know, it was a beautiful newer community back in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then to talk through the rural thing. So this and disclosure to you guys this is how I met Pam. She sold me this house. Um, the, uh, the neighborhood that I'm in now, it's considered rural preservation lots. So they have to be at least a certain size and that changes the density a lot. Um, and that's not something you see anymore at all in Vegas. I think that's been one of the biggest shifts is that everything that's being built as developments. Now the houses are, 10 feet from each other and maybe eight. <laughs> They're really close. Um, what yeah. do you think the motivations are for that shift in density between the late nineties and then now 30 years later? Well, there's a couple of obstacles with Las Vegas. And one of them is just that we're pretty landlocked with all the BLM land around us. You know, yeah. they don't let it go um, easily or quickly. And a lot of that is to control population. However, the problem, there, there, there's so many conversations around this question. And one of the problems is obviously that we've ended up with a housing shortage, right? Yes. Yeah. So developers are getting very creative in what they're doing. Like if you go out in the Northwest right now, um, they've got those properties so dense that in order to get the city to allow them to build that close together, the city has foregone the allocation of green space and oh. allowed rooftop decks. So now they're considering the rooftop deck green space, if you will, because it gives the homeowner a place to be outdoors. That's interesting. You know, because for the longest time, the city, the county, they're requiring, okay, you can have this type of density, this high density. But if you're going to do that, you're going to have to put a park or some type of common area green space within the subdivision close so that these neighbors can walk their dogs and have a place to get out of their homes. Yeah. Now, now we're even seeing that get set aside for rooftop decks. That's that's fascinating that they're considering rooftop decks that because if you look at the evolution of the yard itself in Vegas, like the the early days it was just pull the water out of the ground, let's get this all and green it up. And then as the recognition came in around the water shortage for the last 20 years, they've been actively moving towards sustainability. And in from 2000 to 2020, I think the numbers are, our population increased by like 40%, but our water use went down by like 20%. Right. And a large part of that is pulling out green space and doing zero scaping. But this this is one step further. This is going, you don't even have zero scaping. You've got a roof. No scaping. <laughs> no scaping. <laughs> You're stuck here. No escaping. Um, well, I think the Southern Nevada Water Authority has done a pretty good job. You know, they they reward people for going from grass to um, zero scaping. Yeah. And they'll actually pay them a dollar per square foot, I think, for every patch of grass they get rid of, right? However, yeah. there, there is a covenant that runs with the property after that. And a lot of people don't know. Homeowners have to be aware if you're buying a property that's been zero scaped through the program with the Southern Nevada Water Authority. There is a covenant that runs with that property. And if you were to convert and build a pool, like you could never build a pool on a property that that's been done to. Hmm. And if you did, you would just have to know that you're going to pay a fine to the Southern Nevada Water Authority. And um, the covenant 
goes away at that point. Gotcha. So you're, you're kind of paying back the investment that they give into you. Um, the, uh, the zero scaping and the stuff that the Southern Nevada water authority has done has been really, really helpful. Um, not only do they do the zero scaping, but they also will subsidize pool covers to decrease evaporation. Mm -hmm. They subsidize smart water, um, uh, sprinkler controllers. Um, and they do a lot of things in that direction to kind of get people to be cognizant of how the water works. And in, in that, one of the things that they've done too, as they build out the infrastructure is the water treatment. So any water that goes down the drain goes back into the lake. It's treated and put back where any water that's put in a pool or put on the ground or in the ground, watering plants doesn't, it goes away. Anything that goes into the storm drains doesn't, it goes to the water table, but it doesn't go back in the lake. And so they've been really good with that. And there's, there's a bigger conversation there. Um, I think John Oliver covered it and he was talking about like how the, the water contracts work and how good Nevada is at it and how good Las Vegas is at it. And California is just awful at it right now. Utah is really bad at it. You've got all these places that are not um, being uh, cognizant of their water use. And it's weird to have Las Vegas held up as a model for that when so long it's been the other way, which is why are you watering the desert? Well, I'm doing it very efficiently. <laughs> we are doing it efficiently. And, you know, if you look at the casinos, like just look at the Bellagio Fountain and everything else that's down there, and it could look very egregious. However, the truth of the matter is, is that through technology and through systems, all of that gray water gets reused. Yeah. So yeah. it's not new water by any means whatsoever, like you were referring to. And, yeah. And I'm not sure if you heard... So I think at the end of this month, we're going to get hit with a um, maximum pool size in the state. Oh, really? No, I'm not surprised, though. Yeah. So I don't. It, however, the problem is I don't think it's going to affect many people. What it's going to do is eliminate any huge, large pools. However, it, it's like 500 gallons or something of that nature is going to be the maximum. But the average. No, it's got to be bigger than that. I think a, a normal, like 16 by 32 pool is like 15,000 gallons. Okay, 500 so gallons is like three jacuzzis. <laughs> You're really small. All you get is one of those swim spas and nothing else. <laughs> or there's a 500 in there somewhere. Hold on. It might, it might be, it might, I don't know what that is. Maybe what it is, is it's literally they're going to limit the Nevada homeowner basically um, 10% over what our average pool size is. Oh, so okay. is it going to affect many people? No, but what it's going to do is it's going to stop the big, huge, egregious pools. The new buildings that are being built on the side of the mountain in the Southwest that are looking over the valley and they have those monstrous pools where it's like two Olympic pools on the property. That's that they don't really use. That's the other thing is some of them use it as landscaping more than a pool. Exactly. So. Hey, listen, I just sold a house in the ridges and he paid a couple million dollars for the house, but then he had a pool put in to the tune of $300,000. Jesus. Yeah. That must be a nice pool. It like rivals wet and wild. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's weird because we do have that bizarre split in our housing here. We have a lot of houses that are three, four bedroom, two and a half bath and residential. And they're all over the valley and they sit right next to each other. And then we have these monstrosities that sit on two, three, four acres and have golf courses that are private, um, tennis courts. It's, it's crazy. I drive down Buffalo and Durango sometimes and on those streets on either side, 
they're monsters. They're these giant homes. Um, and if you think, I mean, obviously, listen, Las Vegas is a tourist-driven economy, right? Yeah. And then yeah. you think about the makeup of, okay, well, what kind of population does it take to make that work? Um, you know, let's be honest, our, our casino workers traditionally do not make a, a huge income, you know? So you, and every casino door in Las Vegas, like every room door equates mm-hmm. to about four jobs, but that's your valet parkers. That's your um, concierge. That's your yeah. mates. You know, it's everybody that it takes to make that casino and that hotel run. So every rentable door equates to about four jobs. They're not huge income earners, right? But we need those people for Las Vegas to sustain. Um, so we've got they we've got are the- a little bit they are a little bit more stable here than they are in like New York or San Diego because of the union protections, right? Our like union- a lot of them get set up with not only they they may not pay as well during the span of the job, but the union puts together a pension, and so you have this ability to retire. <laughs> for some of these people and just stay here that's not really available for people that work in hospitality in San Diego, LA, San Francisco, New York, the unions here are really strong. Well, not only do they, um, not only do they take care of them in retirement, they take care of them right now. Like the Colombo union is a force to be reckoned with in this town. Yeah. In fact, you know, we've actually been involved in some real estate transactions for the culinary union. Um, it's debatable in Las Vegas about our, our health um, and wellness abilities, you know, the, the staff. Yeah, you're talking about general health care and how the union influences that? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. There's some weird things about that too, where in Nevada, one of the things they did to keep out like 1-800-DENTIST and smile care and stuff like that is if you're a dentist in Nevada and you want to sell your practice you can't sell it to an overarching corporation. You have to sell it to a licensed dentist. So there's some stuff like that in Nevada where it changes what kind of healthcare practitioners come here. You mm-hmm. got to have somebody that just doesn't want to do the dentistry, but also wants to run the business. Exactly. And you have like 8,000 emergency rooms that are all there trying to get that first pass dollar. Um, exactly. You have the billboards up that say how long the wait is off the next exit. Exactly. So strange. <laughs> for seven hills i want to just drive there one day and test it i'm gonna be right like, i don't oh, know are you really is this eight minutes I took a number <laughs> timer's going you said 15 minutes exactly. my arm's still broken right just hanging <laughs> out but back to the culinary health district i was yeah. fortunate enough to actually be involved in a real estate transaction for them because they take care of their people so well they're actually building healthcare facilities for them so oh, nice I've helped them purchase some land and all of that. So they're just like, you know what? We can do it better. We're going to do it for the members of our union. And they're actually building medical facilities for them. That's amazing. So, that's, so that's I was not aware of that. Into Southern Hills in eight minutes because culinary is all going to their own medical facilities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was, so I was in the union for a short period of time. I was um, apprenticed bartender, which means I got all the, the random shifts. They're like, are you available now? If you're not, you're fired. So I got all the random shifts for a couple of months and being in it and having you work an eight hour day where you're having an hour in the middle for lunch, you get the benefits and the support, you get the kind of the pay that comes into that space. Um, but sometimes it can be harder to get in at the very beginning, uh, depending on what uh, positions you're looking at. But once you're in, they take really good care of you. Yeah. Um, 
But it does create this population where we have a giant service industry population. You're saying four jobs a door? That's the estimation. That's crazy. It takes It takes four employees per door to make a casino run. Okay, so every time we open a new casino, we're bringing four jobs per door to the city. Absolutely. That's amazing. However, I wonder how many jobs per seat. That, right? Say again? Automation will eventually change that though, correct? Oh yeah, we're somebody's going to come through and be like, "This is the robot hotel." Exactly. <laughs> I mean, think about it. You know, there are, there's already bars that you go up to in a casino where there's no bartender; it's an automatic yeah. tour from a machine. Yeah. The truth of the matter is, I mean, I don't think it's as friendly. However, from a corporate standpoint and a financial standpoint, you've got no overpour. Nobody's calling off sick. If that machine breaks down, guess what? There's ten other in the warehouse. You just replace it. Yeah. So there well, are benefits to it. They did move in that direction already on the guns. So all of the guns that they use to pour the drinks at the wells, if you're at the bar and you order a drink, you're going to see them pour with both bottles and then gun for sodas and stuff. Yeah. But the guns in the wells, there's a rum and Coke button. You tap it once and it does a perfect pour. Mm-hmm. There's a, um, a kamikaze button. Like there's buttons for shots and everything. And in the back, the giant things that hold Coca-Cola and soda also hold Jack Daniels and Jim Beam and vodka. And so they're, they're all coming through the gun. It's crazy. So they already had parts of it there. Yeah. They're using people for the last mile. But yeah, that'll be that'll be interesting to see how it changes uh, the economy. Um, the other one I was going to ask you about and see if you know is, do you know how many jobs per seat like MGM Arena and um, the Oakland Raiders Stadium bring? I don't. Because they're kind of a lot of jobs at the beginning. And then I don't know what the ongoing is. I don't. And and here's the truth of the matter. It's kind of a heartburn for me because, you know, for the last 20, 30 years, we're, we're looking at diversifying the Las Vegas economy, right? Because, you know, if, you know, it hits the fan, we're going to get hit hard because yeah. we're, I, I don't want to call Las Vegas a one trick pony because nobody does entertainment the way we do. But for a really long time, we were the one trick pony. It was all about entertainment. Yeah. And I love the fact that we've built this sports mecca and we've done it like that. You know what I mean? I mean, VGK coming in and just taking the city by storm, it just really spurred everything that's going on right now. And now we have people like Mark Davis in Las Vegas. And and the town has really embraced all of these sports teams. However, I have to look at it and I have to say, are we really diversifying the economy or is this just more tourist driven? What we've done yeah. is created a lot of temporary construction jobs, and that's fantastic. You know, yeah. um, the the MSG Sphere has has employed so many construction workers over the last couple of years. There's so many huge projects going on. However, at the end of the day, let's take Allegiant Stadium for instance. Okay, I'm a yeah. ticket holder at Allegiant Stadium. There are eight games per year and two preseason games. Yeah. So there's 10 games a year and maybe 20 concerts. Okay. So that ginormous stadium is not operating on a day-to-day basis where people are working regular nine to five jobs. Yeah, that's true. You have a handful of employees to make it operate. Then you have part-time employees that come in for events, right? Yeah. It's great. That's fantastic. However, it's not creating a lot of full-time jobs. What we are yeah, better at absolutely. is bringing in, you know, STEM. I think we're doing a really good job there. 
Yeah, I was I was really disheartened when uh, Tony Shea passed because I think what he was doing and working on was really revolutionary for the Las Vegas economy. Yeah. Um, for those who may not know, he was the guy that is behind um, the shoe chain Zappos. When they got bought by Amazon, Amazon said, you can operate wherever you want. You guys are great. We're just going to incorporate you into our larger brand. And Tony said, we're going to stay in Vegas, but we're going to move from Henderson to the old courthouse. And he started building downtown Las Vegas into what it is today and revitalizing what had kind of fallen apart since its heyday in the 60s. And so Container Park and a bunch of bars and restaurants that he put in down there, it it was trying to create a neighborhood and an environment to encourage tech culture that he was familiar with from the Bay Area. And he was he was flying in that direction, working so hard at it and he believed in it so much. Um, And with his passing, some of that stuff kind of shakes up there's still people there it's still going it just doesn't have this uh um gas fire lit under it that it did for 10 years yeah well he was a visionary right and yeah. so what it, what it doesn't have is tony yeah like it doesn't have tony it just doesn't have tony anymore however what he did was he left of an enough of a legacy enough of a thrust of a forward movement that there are great people who have picked up the pieces and are running with it for sure I mean, I take my team on a tour of somewhere in the city every month. And probably one of our most favorite visits was the Innovation Center downtown. Mm, Yeah. You know, and so now you've got Tony spearheading this entire movement to renovate downtown, to bring in tech, culture. Um, And now the city of Las Vegas is kind of like, hey, this is actually a really good thing, right? So now they get involved and they start putting money in it. Have you ever visited the Innovation Center down there? Yeah, it's, it's pretty it's cool. Fun, right? It's fun. Yeah. And it's, just, it's exciting to see people and what they're capable of and what they're doing and to give them the space and the place and the backing um, to be significant in our city and to make differences. Yeah. So so we've talked about like the core, which is entertainment, and that's very much the strip. And then now sports as entertainment, too. Um, and then we talked a little bit about what's happening downtown Las Vegas. I think there's other two major factors to our economy that kind of float around the edges. And that's the people that come out here and start working on the strip in restaurants and then break off of those strip restaurants and make a local restaurant. Mm-hmm. That's just, we have one of the best food scenes I think in the country. And it's just kind of quiet and off strip because people come here and they go to the flashy things, the Joel Rubichons and, and the Paris restaurant and stuff that are on the strip. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you get off strip, um, you, you hit places like Echo and Rig out in uh, Tivoli Village. You hit places like Sparrow and Wolf in on uh, Spring Mountain. And they have phenomenal things going on there mm-hmm. that are brilliant chefs making brilliant food. Um, it was interesting then, because um, one of the lead chefs of Il Nuno came to us after COVID. And um, obviously his restaurant was shut down. And um, when they reopened the restaurant, he wasn't hired back. And this is a gentleman who not only ran Il Muno for 10 years here, they brought him out from New York City to run <laughs> Il Muno here. And so, and, and it was one of the most revered restaurants in Las Vegas. And he was just like, you know what? Maybe I'll just do this on my own, right? And um, it, so it's turned into this cool, family, fun, great menu, off strip, restaurant and you know as far as i'm concerned it's the strip's loss and our game you know 
But yeah, there's so many people that are doing that. The other thing that's really crazy is that um, I think there's also two other sectors that really need talked about. One of them is, you know, COVID obviously catapulted the digitalization of everything, right? And so what's happening is we're finding all these companies coming to us that are e-commerce companies, you know, they're like, you know, Amazon distribute, you know, Amazon sellers, whether they're YouTube extraordinaire, whatever they do, they're some type of e-commerce company. But through the past several years, they've gotten so huge that now they need brick and mortar, which is, wait a minute, you know, it's, it's all about the flexibility of not having brick and mortar, but these companies have gotten so big so fast. You know, one of the last companies we've helped their top line revenue the last couple of years was 600,000 two years ago, $800,000 last year. And they're just tired of paying for space to create content and all of this other stuff. They are coming in and consuming our commercial real estate like crazy startups. Really? We have more startups right now. Like that would be considered a brick and mortar startup, even though they have an established business online. There's a big difference between getting somebody to click the, you know, buy it now button online as yeah. it is getting them through your front door and a ring on the register. They're two yeah. totally different concepts, right? It takes yeah. marketing, advertising, and energy. So we're helping convert them and helping them with new business plans because they're just faced with consuming office space or warehouse space, whatever it is that they need to keep to keep expanding. So they're a huge influx. The other so big- that's something. So I was watching. Um, sorry, sorry to jump in. I just want to stay on this this thought in this batch for a second. Watching the Mandalorian and seeing how they did the the crazy like background projection screens and stuff yeah. that they can develop things like that. I look at them and I go, well, where are you building them? And they're outside of London, I think, and they're in Canada. Mm-hmm. They're building them in LA now. But when you do that kind of stuff, it doesn't matter what's outside. You need power and climate control. Well, we're really good at that. <laughs> Just come out here. We'll cover the top with solar panels and you can have four square miles out north of us come and build your own tech city and we'll we'll support it that'd be amazing out here so it sounds like these creators are seeing that and are taking advantage of the proximity to la and the talent and just going it's close enough exactly we're still in the same time zone as my mom you know we have a nevada film authority right yes yeah as a matter of fact the strips or not the strip but las vegas boulevard north of the city is going to be closed for a couple of nights for filming in the next like week so Absolutely. We're, we have films here all the time. We're like super business friendly. And I know like before COVID, one thing that the Nevada Film Authority was doing is they were going after those like Netflix producers like that you're talking about, right? Like you don't, yeah. you don't have to be in LA anymore to film. You don't have to be anywhere. You don't have to be anywhere, right? So you've got all of these, you know, shows and these new productions thanks to streaming, which is everybody's doing it right. Yeah. A couple years ago, the vernacular was cut the cord. Everybody cut the cord a couple years ago and everybody's streaming now, right? Yeah. All of of these movies and these shorts and these films and these shows, you know, they're not filmed in LA anymore. They're filmed all over the place. So the Nevada Film Authority, I think, has been pretty proactive in going after building spaces like this to attract more people to Las Vegas. Yeah. Yeah, so that, I I you know, there's such a long legacy for Vegas and film too. We could almost do an entire 
section on that. So let's we'll kind of bark the creative thing. Just acknowledge that they're coming out here. I have a picture hanging at home when the 215 was being built. Oh my gosh, what was the movie? They shut down a portion of the 215 on the south side to film. um, Oh my gosh, I cannot remember the name of it. But it was great. They shut the whole portion of it down for like two days. And we had a big car chase scene and all kinds of filming over there. It was fantastic. But it, wasn't, it, was, it wasn't the second Matrix movie. That was LA, wasn't it? Or was that? That wasn't. I'm going to remember it before we're okay. done. <laughs> you remember. We'll, we'll edit back in. We'll come back with a producer's note. Um, the, so in staying on these these business topics, the one that I, that I was going to go for next was the um, outdoor activities here. They're gotcha. phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Like we the um, beautiful scenery in hmm. Las Vegas. I never got it when I was little because I, I was born in Pittsburgh, right? So I yeah. grew up 20 miles outside of Pittsburgh, very rural, green rolling hills, trees everywhere. I mean, autumn would come and the leaves would turn and we moved to Vegas and I just didn't get it for the longest time. But I think yeah. as I like grew up and I matured, I dig the fact that like where anywhere you turn in the city, you've got these mountain ranges, you know, yeah. it's just the desert is absolutely stunning. And then put Red Rock on top of that. And we've got Lake Mead, sort of. Sort of. <laughs> we've got Lake Mead. It's little now. <laughs> I know. I drove out there like a month ago for an event. And uh, I'm driving with my husband. And he's like, oh, wow. He goes, when we got scuba certified, we had to land on top of that building. And I was like, what do you, what, what building? What are you talking about? What do you mean? He's like that building. We dove down to that building when we got scuba certified 25 years. Wow. It was, it was pretty enlightening just as to how low the lake has gotten. It's pretty low. We're going to, again, another thing that we could focus on and kind of dive into is the water situation here. But as I've said, we're pretty good at using water here. We're very thrifty with it. Um, We also have the uh, Mount Charleston, which is, you know, 45 minutes from Vegas. And you can, and they have a ski resort up there. It's not open often because we don't get that much snow, but we do get snow. We've had uh, two of the last four years, we've had the Valley get a full dusting, not, like inches or anything, but enough to say it snowed, which is fun. Um, well, absolutely. And it's a sweet little resort and it's family yeah. run. And, you know, you could go up there in the winter. How many, how many places can you live where you're like in the sunshine all the time? Very amicable winters. But if I want to go skiing, you know what? It's a 45 minute drive and I'm there. And in and true I- Vegas fashion, they are putting in a ski through bar. That's amazing. <laughs> I've only uh, ever broken one bone in my life, though, and it was at that ski resort. Oh, congratulations! <laughs> uh, let's 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 pivot from there. So, I think we're doing a pretty good job at talking about why people end up here and stay here. Because, like, I'm a transplant. I'm I'm San Diego was where I was born. I went to school in San Francisco and New York, and then after New York. I went, I can't afford to continue to live in these cities. And I had friends here. So I moved here and now I've been here since 2013. So I'm to next year will be my 10th year here. And oh, it's happy anniversary. Well, early. thank you early, but I'll, I'll take it. Um, but I'm, I'm in, I love the city. It gives me everything I need and it's been a much easier place to live than those others. Right. Which is where we get into the kind of, COVID and work from home and what we've seen over the last couple of years with housing and property prices. 
with this transplant of, well, I can work from anywhere. Um, how many people have you talked to in the last couple of years and sold to who were from out of state? Oh, loads. I mean, loads. I mean honestly, I, it would probably benefit me to actually calculate how many of our clients were out of state transplants. It's, Was it more in the last couple of COVID years than it had been previously? Or because oh, we always get transplants, but yeah, the interesting thing about transplants is it's a hard number to calculate anyway, right? Because what happens is the DMV is calculating it by people who turn in their driver's license and get yeah. a Nevada driver's license. Um, but we're not really calculating the people that leave because a lot of people will move here and not make it. They're gone within six months or a year. Um, we're also not calculating kids that are growing up in households and getting first-time driver's licenses. So it's a, it's a flux number to figure yeah. out how many people are actually moving to Las Vegas and staying here. However, catapulted through COVID. I mean, our numbers were fantastic, honestly. I think we were ranked in the top 10 of people where people were flocking to. Yeah, know, oh, like absolutely. Texas, Idaho, Las Vegas, Florida, um, lots of different regions. But you know, Las Vegas was very enticing, especially for our neighbors in California. It was, it's easy to digest to just like, you know, take the drive down the I-15 and. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, my parents are still in San Diego. And so for me, if I want to go see them on the weekend, I leave Friday and I'm driving opposite traffic Yes, and I come back Sunday and I'm driving opposite traffic. And this right. is great. Exactly. I don't have to deal with it. Yeah. Um, and then I, I'm here during the week, which is what I is, You know, fast forward to where the market's at today, and there's a whole bunch of stuff in between this conversation. However, in the past month, I've lost two California buyers because it, it, we're just not magical to them anymore. They're not finding the deals and the bargains. They can't buy the million-dollar McMansion in Las yeah. Vegas anymore. So they're disenchanted with our values. Um, our property values gone up, skyrocketed you know, probably even more so than a lot of other regions across the nation. And so Californians are now becoming disenchanted with us. And so I lost two California buyers to other states in the last month. Yeah. And that that's compounded by the change in the interest rates, right? So oh, absolutely. those two factors drastically change how people can budget or plan for buying a house. Yeah. Although most of our California buyers have been all cash. Oh yeah, so they they've sold there and are ready. Where does this get me? So is that that's like a ten thirty one? Yeah, I mean you don't ten thirty one a primary residence. So oh, you're right. However, yeah. Well, wait. So and this is just a question, and, and anybody listening, this isn't legal advice. Go talk to a licensed professional. But so I know that if you sell your house and you've been living in it, I think it's three out of the last five years in most places, uh, you have a tax break up to like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So if they're selling the house and then paying in all cash for a new house, are there protections so that they don't get ripped on income tax or capital gains tax on one side and then buying the new property? Like how does that? Yeah, you nailed it. To the best, okay. yeah, to the best of my understanding, you're exactly correct. You actually just have to have lived in the property for two consecutive years, has to have been within the last five years. And then as long as you sell that property exchange, exchange not 1031, just move into another primary residence within a certain time frame, then you're not subject to any capital gain on that. Gotcha. It's like a step up. Yep. And a lot mm -hmm. of the Californians, you know, they're, they're selling incredibly high, right? And then they're taking yeah. their proceeds and they want to buy something cash because, you know, now they want to be debt free. Maybe it's retirement home, whatever it is. 
and they're just not able to fulfill that need in Las Vegas anymore. Yeah. Right. Now. Things are changing. So, yeah. So in that, in that kind of, in that kind of mix, um, the other group that we see doing that a lot are, uh, investors and institutional buyers. Um, the institutional buyers is where I come from on the real estate side. I was with American Homes Rent before Poplar, and they were they did the same thing. Invitation and Progress Residential did in 2010, and just came in with money and bought everything they could, yeah. like just at auction, bought everything they could when the prices dropped. Um, that were were you involved with that at all? What was your experience around 2005, six, seven, eight in Vegas? Yeah. No, I was absolutely. I mean, it, it was interesting. We woke up one morning in 2004 and I think we had 1200 houses on the market and it's just all hell broke loose. I mean, for, for back in the day for Las Vegas to be sustainable, we needed about five or 7,000 resale houses and builders production was on point, right? That kept us stable. Yeah. You, would, you would appreciate anywhere between four and 7% per year. That was traditional. Um, it was like April, 2004, we woke up and there were 1200 houses on the market and things just went nuts and stupid fast and in a hurry. Right. Um, you know, and then of course we all know what happened with the five big banks and bad lending practices and everything that transpired after that. And, um, I will single, I, I will say that I give Blackstone credit for single-handedly stopping our free fall after the crash. Because what I think a lot of people don't know, Blackstone was never interested in residential real estate, not on their radar at all whatsoever. Nope. However, they saw what was happening in Las Vegas and how prices were had just crashed to nothing. And they saw an opportunity, right? Yeah. So I think they deployed a thousand people into the streets of Las Vegas. They just went knocking on doors of every home that was in foreclosure, offering cash for keys. They purchased somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty to twenty-two thousand homes, and it immediately stopped our free fall. So thanks to them, you know, it, it it ended the bleeding. But I would say that's where the institutional investors started in Las yeah. Vegas was black yeah. purchasing. Absolutely. Homes. So for AMH, it was the same experience, except it was it was Wayne Hughes, whose background was public storage, uh -huh. and his public storage, like originally with public storage, it was. It was land banking, right? But he found a way to make money off the land while he was banking it. And that turned into a better business than land banking. Yeah. So when he looked around and saw the crash, he went, this is another land bank opportunity. We can get these, fix them up, sit on them for a while and wait for the recovery. And he was spot on on that. But then in the same way with public storage, I think them, Invitation Homes and Progress, all of those groups looked at it and went, well, if we internalize procedures, stop using third party, do our own maintenance, we see economies of scale with how many homes we have. And that pivoted those companies from being land bank property owners to full on property management goliaths now in the industry. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah. then, you know, fast forward to today, to sticking <laughs> on the topic of institutional investors, you know, yeah. technology, we have the um, huge a behemoth eye giant, uh, eye buyer giants, you know, whether you're Zillow, OfferPad, Open Door, um, also saw opportunity to come in. And then hedge funds and asset management companies were all getting involved and in throwing their hat in the ring. So yeah. it was this weird potpourri of circumstances, like it was the perfect storm of a shortage of inventory, 
huge investor purchases, like massive investor purchases. The other thing that catapulted, which is kind of like a weird little freakonomic fact, is that like our number one buyer right now is millennials. And it's great. They waited longer to purchase and that's fantastic. But the problem is, Justin, they're not putting anything back in the market. They're they're moving from an apartment or mom and dad's home. Yeah. So they're they're not stepping up from a starter house. They're going, my first house is my second house. (laughs) And we have nothing to exchange or put back into the market to sell because they're moving from mom and dad's home or an apartment. So all they do is consume, right? So we have this huge potpourri of circumstances that cause- To be be fair on that point, I think that that's a pressure that's been building on both sides for a while, both with the extended life expectancy, which is great. I'm super happy and not complaining about it. But then with the millennial conditions with kept them from being able to put together a down payment. So you have both of those things happening at once, which severely limits the supply when they do go to buy because there's not, people are staying in their homes longer. They're staying single couple in a four bedroom longer Mm -hmm. where in the past you'd downsize and go live in the additional dwelling unit in the mother-in-law and then sell that house for retirement funds. But that's not happening. People are holding their houses. Mm-hmm. And we see that too. So I will, I will say real quick for like um, Poplar, one of the things that we get excited about, and this also constrains in some ways the housing supply, but also makes it so that there are the step up options is people that accidentally have a spare house where they're like, okay, well, I'm going to move over here to Las Vegas because my kids are there, but I still want to keep my house in San Diego. What do I do with it? Right. And so they don't want to sell it in case they want to come back. So we'll manage those homes for a couple of years while they're uh, following their kids around to be near grandkids. And oh, it's, love it's it. all different housing situations now. Yeah. Well, so, then, you know, we can talk about what COVID did culturally to how people live forever. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. We have all kinds of different situations. We're even helping like friends buy houses together now because everything is yeah. affordable. Right. Yeah. And, um, or, you, you know, the multi-gen home has been a thing for quite a while now. Um, and that's just expanded, but you know, we just, we're not building enough. We're just no. not building enough. Um, and government. On, yeah. On that topic though, speaking of not building enough, I think one of the things that we saw too, in the kind of move away from the city, wasn't just a move away from the city, but it was this lower density desire. And so it was getting out of apartments where all your neighbors are sick, getting out of uh, fourplexes and condominiums and getting into a spot where you have all your walls in your space. Mm-hmm. But now coming out of it and looking around Vegas, we are flat. The only things that stick up on the horizon are the hotels. There's very few apartment buildings that are more than three stories tall, maybe. Correct. So is is that something that you think Vegas has the opportunity or possibility to rezone and kind of do some seriously dense developments in places? We have to, I mean, government officials are already looking at it. We have to grow up, right? We have to grow up. That'd be, that'd be a great great slogan for Vegas. After what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Oh, now Vegas, we have to grow up. (laughs) There's nowhere else to go. We have yeah. to go up. Do you know what I mean? The only way to- Yeah, because they're they're capping down, they're going down the 15 and building out wherever they can there, but they're getting too far away from water. And then I saw them, they're building on the approach to Mount Charleston when you get off the um, 95 going north. And there's single family housing going in there too. That's far from the jobs. 
It's super far. I mean, you know, run in the run up to the crash of 08, bedroom cities became a big thing, right? People were yeah. actually moving out of Las Vegas. I think that was at the time when we were building the bridge to Havasu. Um, so they oh, yeah. actually, what did you do? You cut like 45 minutes off of the drive to get there and back. And, you know, all these little bedroom cities were exploding like crazy. We, start, we started to see a little bit of that again. We had people who they are willing to compromise proximity to Las Vegas for lifestyle like you're talking about. But I don't want to live on top of my neighbor. So I would rather go buy a house in Logandale and have to drive an hour to the city every day. Or thanks to COVID and a new way of working, I might only have to go to the office one day a week. Yeah. I can work remotely, but I want to stay close to home and close to Vegas, close to family, you know? Yeah. So bedroom cities started getting pretty popular. I mean, have you ever been to Indian Springs? Yeah. I, did you see what houses are selling for out there? No, I haven't looked at the market recently, but I've been there. Like, are they there? Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, we've got major communities being built out, um, oh. built out there. I think Lennar is out there. There's quite a few big names out there building right now um, just because people there are those people who desire a little bit more space. So that that brings us into another factor that I think is going to affect stuff moving forward. So when we look around and look at like what the next pass is, you're talking about losing people from from other states to other states just because our pricing's gone up and then the the mortgage hits a little bit with builders that are working on getting stuff through the pipeline and their increases in cost. Will builders be able to come on the market and get in at a good price to sell their homes? Or will that be problematic just because of how much it's costing them to build now with labor and supplies? Yes. To all of that. I'm just kidding. Here's what okay, I Okay, then I said it. We we know it. We understand. <laughs> I think one of the most one of the most interesting things that's going to come out in, in the future is that um, a lot of builders have just let go of a lot of land. I'm not sure if you've read about that or seen it, but you know, builders take down land long before they actually develop it, right? Yeah. And they've canceled escrows all over the city on land purchases. Really? So is it because huh. they it is it because of the problems with supply chain issues, construction costs, labor? I mean, let's just yeah. talk about the labor issue right now, you know? Yeah. Where all it's not that they're not there, or excuse me, it's not that you can't they cost too much. It's that they're just aren't there. They're not there. Exactly. And so I think, I think the mindset is, um, it used to make sense to pay $700,000 an acre for residential land in Las Vegas. When we put the property in escrow, that doesn't make sense anymore. So we're just going to like cut our losses right now, lose the earnest deposit, whatever was down on the land. Yeah. So the escrow, and I don't know if they're hoping that in the somewhat 12 to 18 month future, they can go back and make new land purchases that make more sense and feasibility to mm -hmm. what the new cost of construction is. However, that, all that does is, again, further delay housing starts. Yeah. And we're just in, we have such a huge shortage of housing. It's a huge shortage. Um, the... So, so talking about that and thinking about like the things that are going, like the biggest differences we've talked about that we're seeing from the 2006, seven, eight crash, and then just kind of market conditions now, they're so different so from different. the landing standards on the front side where the Dodd-Frank Act kind of cleaned that up enough that now 
I think the average credit score on a new mortgage is like 750, 760. Mm-hmm. Like it's crazy high. And then all of this capital that people have in their homes, that's above what they got into it for. So if they don't touch that, they've got that as a, a spot. And then beyond that, you have this continued supply constraint with continued new household formation. Yeah. So it's still a supply and demand issue. I was going to say, you know, it, it all comes down to supply and demand. Housing starts with supply and demand, right? And so if, yeah. if, we, have a, if we have a housing shortage, the market's not going to crash overnight. It's changing really fast right now, Justin. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I, I cover the residential stats every week. Every week I'm looking at like week by week snapshots. I'm looking at month over month snapshots. I'm looking at six months over six months snapshots. And I want to say about when interest rates started ticking up a little bit, we started seeing a few price reductions and maybe a few more houses coming on the market. About three months ago, we were actually yeah. noticing a trend. A few more price reductions, a few more houses on the market. Last week, we actually had more price reductions than we had new houses put on the market. So we had 1,500 oh. price reductions last week on existing inventory, and we only put 1,200 new houses on the market. So Interesting. That's a trend worth noting, right? And that 1,500 yeah. doubled from the week prior. The week prior, hmm. it was almost 800 price reductions. Huh. So this is anecdotal. This is just my experience, but I, I can speak from having... Um, I still have the first house I bought here and I rent it, mm-hmm. but after everything that's happened over the last couple of years, I'm like, okay, well maybe I'll look and see like kind of what the market feels about my house and also kind of see how the iBuyers work. So I put it out for all the iBuyers to see what they'd hit at. I talked to a couple of um, investors that do rentals and I was just kind of seeing where it was. And this was like six months ago. Mm-hmm. And then about, I don't know, three weeks ago and I decided not to sell. I'm like, no, you know, it's cash flow, It's good. I'll, I'll just leave it alone. Um, but then a couple of weeks ago, I got a, an email from Open Door that said, your Open Door offer has expired or was expired. Click here to see your new offer. It was down almost $80,000 in six months. So the iBuyers are really pulling back, at least for that one, as I noticed. And then I've seen some chatter on on uh, the forums that's talking about how much of a decrease the iBuyers are doing. So it looks like the iBuyers might be more scared than the normal investor. And that's just because they work on such thin margins possibly. But Well, 100%. And, you know, the market doesn't like um, uncertainty, right? Oh, no. And there's, there's all uncertainty in the housing market right now. It's all yeah. uncertainty. It is. So your asset management companies have all pulled out. Your hedge fund companies have pulled out. I was even talking to a good friend of mine who runs a, a major land acquisition company and they're buying land all over the place for industrial. However, you know, he would partner in JV with these hedge funds and these asset management companies on pretty much 90% of all of his deals. They're not doing anything. They're not touching hmm. real estate right now. Any kind of real estate, any, any faction of real estate. So it's interesting. interesting. The, well, the well went dry super quick. And it's great, right? Like, you know, I'm still, I'm still really old fashioned when it comes to homeownership. I believe in homeownership. I've got a, the highest degree in commercial real estate you can get. And I dig helping people buy houses still. I believe in it, right? Yeah. And um, I, I'm, it's kind of exciting the fact that we're going to actually be able to get some of these buyers who've been left out cold to dry into properties, you know? 
Yeah. Interest rates still aren't that horrible. I know interest that- rates are great. You were talking earlier about the 12% way back in the day. Yeah. These interest rates are great. I know. I, anytime you can get oh, single digit interest rates on a 30 year loan, God, yeah. you're going to beat inflation every time and your property is going to appreciate like the devil. Every single time. And listen, if you can, um, yeah. you can stabilize stabilize your living situation, be in control of your living situation, have a home, build a foundation for your family, build equity, hopefully. Oh, you get, like, listen, look at historically at real estate. Has real estate really ever failed historically over the long term? Yeah. Not really. You know what I mean? Look how quickly Las Vegas recovered. Yeah. We lost 60 to 70% value after the price of 08. We Nobody thought it was going to turn into a, a dust bowl with the no. tumbleweed blowing across the strip. No, we, we're, we've we're fine. recovered from that and appreciated since then, right? Yeah. Like yeah. my kid's 25 years old. He bought his first house two years ago. He was mad. 23 years old, bought his first. He was mad at me. He's like, Mom, oh. I got to pay $285,000. You're a real estate agent. Oh, buddy. <laughs> so, Fast forward to today, I can sell his house with my hands tied behind my back for four hundred thousand all day. Yeah. I can sell his yeah. house, right? Yeah, this he market, picked a good time. <laughs> well, and not only that, if this market, if he loses twenty percent in value, if something happens yeah. over the next, you know, twelve to eighteen months, he loses twenty. What? What has he really been hurt? Nothing. Right. You know, the right. gain. The gain was way too fast and way too quick. And it's not yours unless you're going to cash it in. Right. It's and all- I think so that's, that's that equation that people always forget and they're going, okay, well, I, I need to make sure the investment makes money. I need this and go, no, for most people, the decision to either rent or buy is how much can I afford per month? Yes. Do I have a down payment? And how long am I going to be here? Right. If you're going to be here for more than five years and you have the down payment and you can make the monthly payment, you should buy. 100%. If you're not sure if you're going to stay here or don't know where you want to be, you should rent. And it's it shouldn't be this big economic joyride to see if you're going to win in the game of capitalism, which is what a lot of the like news coverage of this last couple of years has turned into going, oh, you won and you won and you get a money in your house and you get money in your house. But then you turn around and you go, can you afford the life that you want to live to live in this way? Exactly. You know, And then if that option is – well, I'm, I'm here for a couple of years for this job. And then if work from home keeps going, I might move to a cabin in the woods. So I'm going to rent and figure out my stuff and then move. Or if you go, nope, I'm going to be here forever. You might want to buy. You might want to buy it. <laughs> Look at your you numbers and figure it. it out. Put a ring on it. Make her yours. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh. Um, let's, let's go back to, and we'll kind of head towards a wrap up now, just cause I know that we're running towards, um, right where we want to keep these at. So let's come back to where you're at now. So now you're doing more commercial than you're doing real estate, like, like single family real estate. Yeah. I mean, I built my business around Metro. My husband's a 27 year retired Metro officer. And so the great thing was, is that, you know, you become like this little family and you all take care of each other and know each other. So I was able to build my residential career with farming Metro instead of farming like geographical areas. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a blast. Some of them I've helped buy and sell 12 houses. I mean, it's, I I grew up with them in the real estate industry. 
However, you know, coming from the hard money lending industry and having the contacts that I did and, and literally having, knowing the people and the network of people that I did, commercial real estate is really just a great fit. And it's also a different lifestyle. Like I'm looking at possibly like five and out. My husband's been retired for three years. I'm 34 years in the game right now. I might want to wind down, right? So yeah. I'm grooming my nephew and he's all about commercial real estate. This kid is so sharp. He will be better at this job than I have ever been, right? So um, we just decided to like make the switch. And now I've got a team lead that's running all of my residential real estate and who takes care of my clients as well, if not better than I do. And we're just really focused on commercial and our focus has really been industrial and warehouse for the most part. Um, in fact, we're building an exciting new project in uh, West Henderson, which is luxury auto lofts. There's going to be like 53 units out there. Luxury auto lofts? Yeah, they are basically oversized man caves. Huh. It's like flex warehouse space, right? Oh, interesting. Yeah, so it's a community of 53 flex warehouse condo spaces. And they've got the big, huge roll-up door. You go into a warehouse. It's got a big loft on the upper deck. Um, they all have rooftop decks and balconies overlooking the strip. They're fantastic, right? So we put a lot of focus on this, which is, <laughs> the timing is actually really interesting because we didn't talk about it. And I know we're running out of time. I won't go too far into it. But but the other big thing happening in Las Vegas right now is the explosion of industrial. Yeah. Um, Las Vegas is geographically located. We are in, of course, for transit, right? Yeah. So you're going to start. Yeah, absolutely. We have we have one of the busiest airports in the world that's in a perfect location. We can take the big planes. We can take the little planes. And then every truck drives through here. We can just get California and make the 15 a three lane when you leave exactly. the state. Well, speaking of, speaking of California, you're going to see a lot of industrial going on out by the M and out on the southern end of the town. Mm. Because when we, when we put the drop off there and the pickup, they can come in from California, do their drop off and their turnaround and go back and meet the time frame. Yeah. Right. They have to go through the city or to North Las Vegas or Apex. They have too many hours behind the wheel and they're not yeah. allowed to make the trip. So Interesting. There's a there's an explosion going out at Apex, which is a technology warehouse hub that would blow your mind. And then you're huh. new construction out near the M. So we're just in a course. And so it, it everything just kind of like organically worked together that um, it just so happens that putting my efforts into commercial real estate during this time and with my specialty in industrial and warehouses just so happens to work with what's going on in the city right now. It's pretty relevant. That's great. Uh, let's, let's do that as a plug turn. So if people want to find out and make a commercial connection towards warehouses in Apex or auto lofts, where do they find you? They just call me at 702-812-6339. Why does this feel like a 900 commercial? I don't know. That guy really, really kind of, uh, I'm not going to make any jokes. That oh, can be horrible. Um, yeah. So, so call Pam. She'll help you out. You can track her down on LinkedIn too. Uh, do you guys have, uh, what's your website to head to? Yep. It's just my name. Oh, if we, okay. If we cool. Can- we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Pamela Yungi, is it a .com? It is at theyungigroup.com and can be found in the show notes. There we have all the contact bits. Uh, I'll tell you what, Pam, this was so much fun. I think we're going to have you back and talk about all the things we didn't talk about yet. So, so much going on in Las Vegas. So much going on. Man, Vegas is a fascinating place to be. Um, it was an absolute blast. I appreciate you for having me.
not a problem. We're really happy to do this. And for any of the listeners at home, if you guys need property management service or somebody to manage your properties, you can reach us at poplar.homes slash pod. Again, that's poplar.homes slash pod pod. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen to us ramble on. Bye guys. Bye Justin.